Amen. What a joy it is again to be able to share the living word of God with you. I think my last time preaching was actually three Sundays ago. So if you would, please open your Bible to Revelation chapter 4. We're going to look again at verse 1, reading all the way through verse 11. We entitled this part 1 and part 2 message, this, the prototype of worship from heaven for the church. The prototype of worship from heaven for the church. I remember hearing R.C. Sproul say this one time, and I'm quoting him. He said, if God himself were to design worship, what would it look like? If God himself were to design worship, what would it look like? So beginning in verse 1, let's read. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of trumpet, speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. And out from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal, and in the center and around the throne four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion. The second creature was like a calf. The third creature had a face like that of a man. And the first creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created. That is indeed God's word to God's people. The Bible says that the grass withers and the flower fades away, but God's word will endure forever. Amen? Amen. Just to back up just a little bit, uh, when we preached last three Sundays ago, we pretty much established that, that again, the view of heaven here is one of worship. And ultimately, this worship is the worship of Almighty God. 
We learn how that the word worship is from a Hebrew word in the Old Testament, which is actually spelt B-A-H-A, and it's pronounced Baha, and it means to bow down. It means to literally bow down. It's found some 236 times in the Old Testament. So in actuality, the truth of the matter is to worship God is to extol God, but it's actually seen in a way where you actually bow down before God. I know that many times in our churches today, we have become so formal in our worship that we dare not raise a hand to express worship, and we dare not bow because somebody thinks we might be too charismatic, or we don't clap because, you know, you just don't do that in church. But in reality, we are admonished to bow down and worship Him. We're encouraged to lift our hands and worship Him. The psalmist says, clap ye hands, all ye people shout unto God with the voice of triumph. I really think if we cannot really begin to really understand what it means to extol the worth of God in worship now, it is to say that when you get to heaven, you will be bored. If you somehow cannot right now experience and look at heaven as the prototype of all true worship of God from heaven for the church. We're talking about worship that is in heaven that is perfect in every way. We know that our worship in partial is not perfect in every way. But we are beginning to experience a foretaste and what is actually shown to us as a prototype in heaven of what we can experience now as best we know how to worship God biblically and accurately from Scripture that would only be what would really be better to prepare us of what's going to be perfect about worship when we get to heaven. I'm looking forward to that. How about you? I can honestly tell you that the older I get and the more I'm blessed to grow in the grace and the knowledge of God, the more that I contemplate God. Hard to explain, but it's like there's not many moments in a day that go by without thinking about God, without understanding what it is to worship and extol the worth of God. And not just limiting that to 60 to 90 minutes on a Sunday, thinking we've done our duty as far as worshiping God when, when you don't realize, or unless you don't understand what it is, that it is to say that worship is not something that's reserved only for Sunday for 60 to 90 minutes. But it's a lifestyle. It's how we express our devotion and our love and our deep, 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 deep appreciation for our God in whom we serve. So we begin to see in this vision that began to unfold that really what is seen here, 11 times you'll see the word throne in these 11 verses, which obviously is the understood subject or the most dominant thought about this vision of heaven is the throne. And what we discovered the last time was that the first thing that is absolutely essential and imperative that we understand about worship and if we're going to look to heaven as the prototype 
or the perfect model for the worship that we should have in the church from heaven for the church is to realize it always begins with having an exalted high view of God and his sovereignty. And that's what we see. We saw here a throne which actually represents God's sovereign rule and authority. Supremely his, preeminently his. What he's created, he sustains. It belongs to him. He's God of the universe. He's God of our lives. We worship him. This represents his sovereign rule and authority, his throne that's mentioned 11 times in these 11 verses. In fact, the Bible says in Psalm 11, verse 4, the Lord is in his holy temple. In this case, this is just another word or phrase for heaven. And we did determine that God is in heaven. We did understand and we saw in Scripture that heaven is the abode of God. God is there. Christ is at his right hand. The glory of God fills the place. The Holy Spirit's there. They're all co-equal. They're all deity. They, they, they all are eternally uh, 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 coexisting in terms of their eternality. And they're there in heaven. We know that when Jesus Christ was resurrected, he spent about 40 days on the earth. Ten days prior to, or living up ten days prior to Pentecost. And when he finally ascended, remember the angel there said, why do you look up gazing in the heaven? The one that has ascended to the heaven will come back again. And then when you study John 17, Jesus was so excited about uh, when he prayed his high priestly prayer to the Father about going back to where he was before he came. Where was that? Heaven. He was in heaven. So Christ is there. The Holy Spirit's there. We get that. But in reality, the point here that we're seeing about the throne of God in heaven is a throne that speaks of solely and most preeminently his sovereign rule and his authority. In fact, again, Psalm eleven four 4 says, The Lord is in his holy temple, which is heaven. The Lord's throne is in heaven. That's what it says. Psalm 103, verse 19 says, The Lord has established. That word means uh, is firm. Uh, it's stable, it's fixed, it's, it's immovable. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. Sovereignty there implies his royal power, his dominion, and his reign. He rules, he reigns from his throne because he's sovereign over all. Over all. Then Isaiah 66, 1 says, Thus there the Lord, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. But again, John saw a throne, but yet the throne he saw was in a position of standing. We saw that that throne that is standing and why it's standing is because God's sovereign rule is fixed, is permanent, is unshakable, is unending. It'll never diminish. This throne, his rule, this standing is fixed, is permanent. It'll never change. It'll never be moved. And so this vision of God's immovable throne, we learned, reveals that he's in a permanent, unchanging, and complete control of the universe. And that does mean that this is clearly what is distinctive about the prototype of worship from heaven for the church. It is a high view of God, seen completely in his sovereignty. The dominant theme 
in this worship in heaven is God's obvious control of his sovereign ability and all that he is. So as we move on now into verse 3, it says, And he was sitting, and he who was sitting was like a jasper stone, a sardius in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. A jasper stone, a sardius stone in appearance surrounding the throne where he was sitting. Actually, this description of God on his throne is seen in also Ezekiel's vision almost to the letter, to the word, in Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 26 and 28. But then again in Revelation 21, 11, John describes Jasper as crystal clear. Crystal clear. Best to identify this Jasper as a diamond. A diamond. And because of the brilliance of the diamond, what it speaks of is the glory of God. The glory of God. What is in heaven is God on his throne, that throne is standing, and he's seated on that throne, but the brilliance of the color of the diamond is so brilliant that what that speaks of is the glory of God. And when you speak of the glory of God, you're speaking about the person of God. And if you speak about the person of God, you're speaking about the presence of God. And if you speak about the person and the presence of God, you're speaking about the actual power of God in his ruling and reigning position as sovereign. His radiant, shining glory coming out of his throne. This clear shining speaks of his purity. It speaks of his holiness. So there is a shining forth of the radiant glory of the majesty of God coming from his throne. He's holy. We worship him in the beauty of his holiness. The perfections, the attributes, the very, the very being of God proceeds from his throne. Notice it says in verse 3 as well that there was a rainbow around the throne. A rainbow around the throne. This rainbow represents his covenant faithfulness to his church, to his very own. You know as well as I know on a spring or a hot summer day, if we have one of those little thunderstorms that come up and the wind blows and it gets dark and there's thunder and there's lightning and the, the rain comes and it descends and begins to pour down upon the earth, maybe 10, 15 minutes, all of a sudden the clouds begin to break, the sun begins to come out and what appears in the sky? A rainbow. What was the rainbow? It was a covenant sign to God's people back in Genesis that God would never, ever again destroy the, the entire inhabited earth as he did with the flood because he had a covenant he made with Noah and that covenant sign was what? The rainbow. It breaks my heart that certain individuals take the rainbow as an emblem of who they are. But make no mistake about it, it was God's idea and it represents God's faithfulness and God's covenant relationship with his very own. Isn't it wonderful to know that God compels us to worship him in the beauty of his holiness or in the beauty of his holy attire, as one translation says, and to know that the reason why we do that and we can embrace that and we can really 
actually worship God in who he is is because he's faithful to his own. And by that faithfulness to his own, he is the one that actually compels us to worship. It's God that compels you to worship. It's the work of the Holy Spirit that does something in your heart, in your soul, in your emotion that compels you to worship God. That rainbow speaks of that. It represents God's covenant, His faithfulness to His own. Then again, that emerald that was in appearance too, again, speaks of, as I said, the perfections, the attributes, the very being of God. The truth is, church, this should clearly be the true identity of worship seen in the church that we're seeing here. There's a throne, it's standing, there's one that's sitting. There's a diamond that expresses who God is, the rainbow, the emerald, all these things. It is to say that God has given us specifics biblically that we can attach our minds and our souls and our hearts to biblically that should be the highest motivation, the highest passion, the highest devotion that's in our heart to worship Almighty God. Amen. Then in verse 4, around the throne there were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. 24 thrones. These were actually lesser thrones. Lesser thrones. These are subordinate thrones having delegated authority who would again rule and reign with God in Christ under God's sovereign control and authority. Then there were 24 elders representing the redeemed of the saints. It could be that from, the, from all the ages, 12 elders could have been from the Old Testament saints, 12 could have been from the New Testament saints, but it represents, again, the redeemed of the Lord residing under the supreme authority of God. And they were clothed in white garments. It says there in verse 4, this speaks of perfect righteousness imputed to them in Christ. Perfect righteousness that's of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He became sin who knew no sin, that we might be made righteous with His righteousness. There is the actual doctrine of justification, the, the imputation of perfect righteousness that is given to you because of your faith and your trust in Christ. The Bible in heaven identifies that as those that are clothed in white garments. Then golden crowns. It goes to say golden crowns on their heads. These victors crown, this victors crown worn by those who successfully endured the trial. Those who competed and won the victory. It's the same thing that happened to those in the church in Smyrna back in chapter 2 verse 10 where it says, Christ said to them, be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. That crown of life is the crown that every believer will receive. It's part of heaven. And then what identifies this worship in heaven again? Number one, it is God's sovereign control and God exalted, having an exalted, lofty, high view of God in heaven. Worship doesn't begin with your preference. Worship doesn't begin with your style. Worship doesn't begin how you're going to sing a song. What kind of tempo you're going to have? 
uh, how many instruments you're going to have. It's not going to the drawing room and developing some type of worship that you think will be keen and appropriate and something that might be attractive, something that might be appeasing, or something that might draw the crowd. No, never. Worship always begins foremost with your view of God, a high view of God. But then there's a second thing. The second picture here we see clearly, and as R.C. said, if God could show us a worship service, what would it look like? Well, first of all, it looks like where God is exalted. There's a high view of God. But secondly, there's an awe, there's a reverence. There is the fear of God. There's a reverence. There's an awe. There's the fear of God. Look at verse 5. And out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. That right there actually is a metaphor or, any, or actually a type of what would some Bible scholars and theologians look at as for as being something that represents God's judgment. And it does. In fact, I would encourage you, John MacArthur recently at their seminary in Los Angeles preached the message on on the storms of Yahweh. It is amazing what he preached on. If you get a chance, just Google Master Seminary in Los Angeles, California, and go to the archives of the latest chapel service and hear what he preached about the storms of Yahweh. <coughs> and basically what he was talking about is how that lightning is spoken of many times in the Bible with reference to God. Just like we see right here before his throne, uh, in verse 5, out from the throne comes flashes of lightning. And then, as MacArthur is teaching this, Dr. MacArthur is teaching this, and he brings out how that, again, lightning in the Bible is seen many, many times, he goes on to share some thoughts that I'd never even considered. He was talking about how lightning is nothing more than a high giant static electric spark that's what it is it is actually the most powerful of all forces on the earth lightning there's nothing that matches its power period it flies from heaven to earth at 200,000 miles per hour it heats the air around it 150,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Approximately 16 million thunderstorms with lightning every year. We have that many light storms every year around the world. 16 million. Lightning has killed more people than all the hurricanes, tornadoes, collectively through a given year. And scripture teaches us lightning is more related to divine judgment than to any other thing in the Bible. Be sure to realize that in worship, there is that element of understanding that God whom we serve is indeed a God of judgment. Meaning again, he's in control. He's sovereign. But again, it would imply as well that not only was this lightning coming from the throne, but it was something that would actually represent what it is to have an awe and a reverence and a fear for God. 
an offense and a fear for God. In fact, when we look at this as far as understanding what it is to have a reverence and have a fear from God, it's said that, that this actual bolt of lightning came from the throne. It came from the throne. And this is the prototype of worship from heaven. It's for the church. This came from the throne. Revelation 2.11 says, Worship the Lord with reverence. Rejoice with, with uh, trembling. Isaiah 5.7 says, Out of your holy temple I will bow in reverence before you. There are so many scriptures in the Old Testament that shows that worship is an act of reverence, is an act of awe, is an act of understanding what it is to fear God. And this response to that worship that came from the throne should result in us understanding what it is to have fear and reverence and stand in awe of God. And then it goes on to say here, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne. We go from the throne is something that's before the throne. The lightning came from having an awe and a reverence and a fear of God came from the throne, but there's something that's before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Seven actually, uh, pardon me. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne in the seven spirits. Seven lamps there burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits. The seven lamp stands here are not, again, or the seven, again, lamps are not like the lamp stands seen in Revelation 1. These were actual lamps or things that burned as a lamp of fire. And they were outdoor torches, giving off not the soft, gentle light of an indoor lamp, but the, the fierce, blazing light of a fiery torch. All this imagery is vivid and very graphic, but it all speaks again of the awesomeness and the glory of God seen in heaven. And then again, he goes on to say that these seven lamps identifies the seven spirits of God. Does that mean there's seven Holy Spirits? No, that's not what that speaks of. In fact, seven spirits of God describes really the Holy Spirit in all of its fullness, all of its perfection, all of its completeness. In fact, Isaiah 11, 2 describes these seven things of the Holy Spirit as being wisdom, understanding, counsel, strength, knowledge, redeemer, and deity. Again, notice these things were before the throne, and then he goes on to talk about how that there was actually, again, the, the sea of glass, as we see in verse 6. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center, around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. Before the throne, something like a sea of glass. I like what John MacArthur said in his commentary on this. Is Heaven is not like a shadowy world of mist and instinctive apparitions it is a place of dazzling brilliant light refracting and shining as through jewels and crystals in a manner beyond our ability to describe or even imagine in revelation 24 talks about 21 verse 10 through 11 verse 18 speaks about that very thing again of those 
particular things that are so brilliant in heaven that, again, displays and makes us see that the understood thing about that throne is indeed the glory of God. But then he talks about four living creatures. He goes on to say the four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. Four living creatures are actually could be translated four living ones, cherubims. In fact, Ezekiel 10.15 describes these four living creatures or these four living ones as cherubims, but they're actually described as being the guardians of the glory of God. The guardians of the glory of God. In fact, when you look in Genesis 3.24, what did God position the garden to keep Adam and Eve from coming back in? The guardians of the glory of God. It was a cherubim. And notice they're full of eyes in front and behind, which means they're constantly looking. They're constantly surveilling. There's the constant surveillance. There's the constant looking. They're, they're called to be protectors and guardians of the glory of God. And then it goes on to actually describe in verse 7 that this first creature was like a lion, the second creature like a calf, the third creature had a face like a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. First creature like a lion, this represents strength, serving God. Second creature like a calf reflects service, a sacrificial service. Third was like the face of a man, representing reason and and uh, reasoning and, and being actually intelligent or smart. And the fourth creature is like that of an eagle representing speed, swift to carry out the Lord's command. Serving God. Sacrificially serving God. Reason. Reasoning. Swift to carry out the Lord's command. And then verse 8 goes and says, These four living creatures, each one had of them had six wings full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord, God the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Four-living creatures having six wings denotes that their, their preeminent supreme duty and privilege is to constantly worship God. They were created to do nothing but worship God. That's all they do. Two they flew with, two they covered their face, two they covered their body. They were created to literally worship God. Worship God. So there's the exalted view of God. There's that reverence and that awe and that fear of God in heaven, which again is the prototype of worship from heaven for the church. But the last thing we see here is an exalted view of God, reverence towards God, and then what we would call humility before God. Latter part of verse 8 says that they do this day and night, they worship. And then when you read on down through verse 11, when the living creatures gave glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. I'm thinking, God, why don't we do that now? Why are we so reserved? Why have we got these, these preconceived ideas of how we think we ought to worship you? What we ought to say to you? And why would anybody need to die to go to heaven to find out what it's like to worship God when we have the perfect 
prototype, the perfect blueprint, the perfect model on how we're to worship God right here in the scriptures. Why can't we just do it the way he says do it? Why? Are we smarter than God? Are we trying to be culturally relevant to accommodate those that we think this is what they would want and this might make them feel comfortable and this might make them feel like they're a part and we certainly don't want to do anything not to be, again, relevant in whatever we can do to make people whatever we think we need to make them be. Humility before God reaches its climax with exalted worship towards God's throne. There it is. That's that's humility. Humility before God. God, I'm nothing without you. I can do nothing without you. I am what I am by the grace of God. I live and move and have my being through Christ. I worship you. I adore you. I magnify you. I exalt you for who you are. The scripture tells me who you are. God, help me. Give me grace. Give me strength. Give me motivation. Give me enthusiasm to worship you in a way that honors you. That's what we see here. Before man fell, weren't you created by God and for God for the worship of God? Weren't you? You were created in His image after His likeness. Before humanity became flawed and ruined by the fall. Do you think it was perfect worship then? Was it the prototype maybe of worship even in the garden before the fall that we see really what's happening here in Revelation 4 that should be again the clear model and example that we should follow to clearly worship God. In this text, in chapter 5, there are basically five exalted acts of humility shown by the expression of hymns. We look at verse 8 9 again, we just read it. That first expression begins with a quartet. And they're called the four living creatures. It begins with a quartet. The four living creatures. You see what they sang. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. God, the Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. And then all of a sudden, the 24 elders begin to merge in. When you look at verse 10... The 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne. They're joining in. And then the harps are added in verse 8. Or excuse me, chapter 5, verse 8. We move down to that chapter because you can see where the harps are added. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before, again, the lamb, each one holding a harp, in golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So we go from a quartet of four living creatures to 24 elders that begin to merge in. And all of a sudden now the harps begin to add 
in to their vocal expression. Then the rest of the angelic host adds their expression of worship. Seen in chapter 5, verse 11. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders. And another of them was myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power, riches, and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. Notice the progression. A quartet, four living creatures, 24 elders, they merge in. There's the addition of the harps. The angelic host comes in. And then all of a sudden, all created beings and the universe joined and merged in, expressing their humility towards the throne, worshiping Almighty God, seen in verse 13 of chapter 5. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in it, I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And then back in verse 8 again of chapter 4, the four living creatures begin their expression of worship by concentrating on God's holiness. His holiness. I love the Puritans. I read everything I can by them. I'm so thankful that books that were dated back 17th century, 18th century, are still in print. Thank God for Joel Beakey. He's one of the best booksellers I've ever met in my life. But he will put you on to Puritan writers that understood and really embraced what it was to worship God because of his holiness. Because of his holiness. And the only time we see the attributes of God that is referred three times is right here. And also in Isaiah 6, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. In fact, Exodus 15, 11 says, there's no one holy like the Lord because he alone is majestic and holy. Then they referred to him as the Almighty. The Almighty was first identified to Abraham in Genesis 17, 1 to Abraham that God was the Almighty. But here it identifies God as the strongest, the most powerful, devoid of any weakness whose Conquering power and overpowering strength no one can oppose. Almighty God. Almighty God. Who was, as it says, and who is, and who is to come to him who lives forever and ever. Eternity, eternal transcends time, having neither beginning nor ending. And notice after the living creature's it talks about how that these elders fell down and they worshipped. I don't know if you remember this, but in the Greek, the word worship in the New Testament was best described by a word that is spelled, pronounced obeisance. And it's a word that actually means a gesture or a movement. And this gesture and this movement, out of having a high view of God, out of having a proper view of fear and reverence for God, and then come before God with a sense of true humility that the only obeyance that was proper is they fell down and they worshipped him.
Folks, God is supposed to be worshipped. And that's what we're called to do. There we have, if God was to give us what a worship service would look like, we just saw it in those 11 verses in Revelation chapter 4. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much, God, for your eternal word. Your word, God, is a lamp to our feet and a light into our path. We are so thankful, God, for your word. God, we're so thankful that you would indeed give us instruction from your very mouth through the written words that are found on the pages of what we call your word, the prototype of worship from heaven for the church. God, help us to regain or to have or to regain if somehow it's diminished what it is to have a a high view an exalted view of your majesty on your throne standing and you are actually seated there. What it is to have that sense of reverence and awe when we worship you, God. Not to play games. Not just to sing a hymn, just to be singing it. Not going through the motions or the, the ritual of doing things that become more mechanical than things that are truly devotional and things that are truly heartfelt because of our view of you and understanding what it is to fear you, but yet coming before you with humility. What are we, God, without you? What can we do without you? What would happen if we didn't have you? God, help us see that tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Closing hymn is hymn number 170. Let's stand together as we sing, Like a Shepherd Lead Us, hymn number 170. Savior, like a shepherd lead us, much we need thy tender care. In thy pleasant pastures feed us, for our use thy foes prepare. Blessed Jesus, blessed Jesus, thou hast bought us, thine we are. Blessed Jesus, blessed Jesus, Thou hast bought us, thine we are. We are thine to befriend us, be the guardian of our way. Keep thy flock from sin, defend us, seek us when we go astray. Blessed Jesus, Blessed Jesus, hear, O oh, hear us when we pray. Blessed Jesus, blessed Jesus, hear, O oh, hear us when we pray. Thou hast promised to receive us 
poor and sinful though we be. Thou hast mercy to relieve us, grace to cleanse and power to free. Blessed Jesus, blessed Jesus, early let us turn to Thee. Blessed Jesus, blessed Jesus, early let us turn to Thee. Early let us seek Thy favor, early let us do Thy will. Blessed Lord and only Savior, with thy love and blossoms fill. Blessed Jesus, blessed Jesus, thou hast loved us, love us still. Blessed Jesus, blessed Jesus, thou hast loved us, love us still.